Do you believe that the spirits of tormented beings hang around in death to torment the living? What lengths would you go to as a ghost to get people out of your house? Could a ghost actually possess someone to kill? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who doesn't believe in monsters, but checks under the bed anyway. This week, we'll touch on hooded figures in fireplaces, green slime oozing out of walls, and people levitating. The DeFeo family's former home, most commonly known as the Amityville Horror. For decades, this cultural touchstone has inspired countless books, movies, and goth teenagers. But what really happened to the Lutz family when they moved into 112 Ocean Avenue? If you haven't listened to the last bonus episode about the DeFeo murders, go back and do that now. We only have about 30 minutes, and Lord knows I'm not going to spend any of that on a recap. So, Kathy and George Lutz bought the six-bedroom, one-boathouse home on the water in Amityville, Long Island in 1975. The house was originally on the market for $100,000, but the Lutzes were like, um, considering six people were slaughtered here a year ago, how about we give you $80,000 and call it even? In truth, George Lutz later said he figured that a house is just a house made of wood and drywall and whatever. It doesn't hold on to the past. But when you're negotiating a house price, a familicide is a pretty strong bargaining chip. Turns out, familicide is worth at least twenty grand. George told an interviewer, it never occurred to us that the house would be uninhabitable. We had concerns for the kids. You just don't force your kids to move into a place like this. That's not how we did things. But they had no reservations. And first of all, yes, you do force your kids to move. They're kids. They don't have a say. If I let my son have his way, we'd be living in a treehouse on Jupiter with a bowling alley, a pool, and a hot tub. And second of all, I hope to baby Jesus they didn't tell their kids about the guy who murdered his family in the house a year earlier. Some things are better left unsaid. Kathy Lutz was Catholic, so she had the house blessed before the family moved in. For those of you who aren't Catholic, don't laugh. I see you saging your apartments. After the blessing... The priest was like, the house seems demon-free, except I felt something strange in that one upstairs bedroom. When George explained that they were going to use it as a sewing room, the priest ominously responded, That's good. As long as no one sleeps in there, that's fine. Sure, the haunted room filled with needles and scissors is fine, as long as no one sleeps in it. I'll pause here to mention that I just watched the original Amityville horror movie this morning for the first time. The movie, much like the sex scene toward the beginning of it, is really slow and nothing much happens. Though right off the bat, when the priest comes to bless the house, he is overcome by an ominous presence in the haunted bedroom. A collection of flies gathers on the window and on his face and hair, and it looks like he smells something awful. Either that or he was stifling a sneeze. A voice tells him to get out. He does, but not before retching in the Lutz's yard. 
I spent the rest of the movie wondering why no one noticed the giant pile of barf in the driveway. Listen, I can buy haunted houses, but disappearing vomit is where I draw the line, people. Back in real life, the Lutzes shrugged their shoulders and moved into the murder house with only one haunted room. The first thing the Lutzes noticed was that they couldn't get warm in the house. It was early December in the Northeast when they moved in, so they didn't think too much about it. But then they started noticing random cold spots. George said there was one in the stairway, there was one in the basement, and one out in the boathouse. The one in the basement, as I recall, wasn't always there. There would be times when you were looking for it, and it wouldn't be there. But George thought, eh, we just bought a drafty old house built in 1927. It's no big deal. But then he started noticing what he called a deadening of sound. He reported that the family was unable to hear cars passing by from their enclosed porch. None of this sounds too alarming. But the random drafts around the house and the anomalies of sound, it turned out, were just the beginning. As the days went on, things got even stranger. Kathy Lutz began to notice weird odors in the house. One day, she entered her bedroom and was struck by what she described as a Swedish perfume smell. I don't mean Swedish like lingonberries and clogs. I mean sweet-ish. Looking for the source of the smell, she went into her bathroom. Suddenly, the smell transformed into an unbearable stench. As she ran out of the room, she caught a glimpse of her toilet bowl and noticed it was completely black inside. And, like, yes, the 1970s diet of TV dinners, tab, and cigarettes sure could do a number on one's intestinal system, but this was much worse than a casual case of the squirts. Kathy yelled for her husband to come investigate, and the couple found that all the toilet bowls on the second floor were completely black with varying degrees of weird smells emanating from them. Then, going to open the windows to get the odors out, the Lutzes found hundreds of flies on the insides of their window panes. It's definitely not normal for that many flies to be hanging around in winter. I mean, if you have as many flies as the Lutzes claim to have, no matter what time of year... Something is definitely wrong. But in the dead of winter, those were demon flies for sure. Now, at this point in the original movie, George is going insane. You can tell mostly because he stops brushing his hair and he develops an infatuation with his axe. In addition to constantly chopping wood, tending to the one fireplace in the house, and not brushing his hair, George goes to the local library, finds a book about flies and inexplicably steals it from the library where books are free. Anyway. As time passed, it was pretty clear that things were just going to get weirder. George started waking up at 3.15 a.m. every night, which just happened to be around the time that Ronald DeFeo Jr. massacred his family in the house a year earlier. It got really creepy when once, awake at 3.15 a.m., George saw that Kathy was sleeping on her stomach, which I guess wasn't normal for Kathy, but also this was how each member of the DeFeo family was laying when they were shot. When George went to touch his wife's head, she woke up and yelled, She was shot in the head! She was shot in the head! I heard the explosions in my head! And let me tell you, from there, things really started snowballing. 
Kathy soon discovered that a crucifix she hung in the house was emitting a strong odor and had somehow inverted itself. According to the book The Real Amityville Horror, Kathy opened the door to the walk-in closet. Immediately, a sour smell struck her nostrils. She pulled the light chain hanging from the closet ceiling and looked around the small room. It was empty except for one thing. On the very first day the Lutzes had moved in, she had hung a crucifix on the inner wall facing the closet. As Kathy looked at it now, her eyes widened in horror. She began to gag at the sour smell, but couldn't retreat from the sight of the crucifix, now hanging upside down. I'm not going to linger on the fact that Kathy hung a crucifix in a closet. Like, is that a normal place for a crucifix? Do you think Jesus would like being relegated to the closet? Also, not for nothing, but Kathy had two tween-age sons. You know what kids that age like to do? Play pranks. Isn't it possible that one of the kids hung the crucifix upside down because they knew that would send their mother over the edge? Also, in the last apartment I lived in in Manhattan, there was an awful stench that I couldn't cover up try though I did. And while I didn't have a fly infestation, I did have a cockroach infestation, which also seemed untreatable. The apartment wasn't haunted, though. It was just a shithole. A week after we moved out, the fire department found a gas leak in that apartment that, if left unchecked for another week, would have blown up the building. Soon after the crucifix incident, though, Kathy's five-year-old daughter, Missy, began to see an imaginary friend she called Jody. But when Missy described Jody, she wasn't a human or even a cute little creature. Jody was apparently a pig with glowing red eyes. And, I mean, even though it's creepy, you gotta give Jody points for creativity. It's not every day a five-year-old has a demon pig for an imaginary friend. It wasn't long, though, until Jody allegedly became a little too real. One night when George was outside, he looked up at the house and saw Missy staring at him from her second-floor bedroom. Already a little spooky, but uh, kids are weird. What was really creepy, though, was that George suddenly noticed the face of a pig behind Missy, glaring down at him with red eyes. Terrified, he ran upstairs to his stepdaughter's room and burst through the door, but... All he found was Missy lying face down on her stomach asleep in bed. In the corner of her room, a small chair with no one in it creaked as it rocked back and forth. The priest who blessed the house might have been a little hasty in saying the house was 99% demon-free. Now, if this were me, a demon pig with glowing eyes hanging out with my kid would have been the final straw. But not the Lutzes. Flies, gross odors, and Jody the Devil Pig weren't enough to drive them away. And, as you'll find out, things just got worse for the Lutzes. Much worse. You know that thing where you buy something and instantly regret it, but you try to convince yourself and everyone around you that it's the best thing you ever bought? Like sometimes you buy a house that's possessed, but you go around being like, this is fine because you've already sunk a bunch of money into it and moving sucks. The Lutzes continued to try to make things work, but of course the creepiness only escalated. 
One night, when George and Kathy were sitting in front of the fireplace, Kathy began to see a white outline materialize in the flames, contrasted by the soot-darkened brick. Soon, it became more distinct, and Kathy decided it was a demon with horns wearing a white cloak. From under the cloak's hood, she could see that half of the figure's face was blown away, as if shot by a rifle at close range. Kathy was so scared she couldn't speak, so when George asked what was wrong, she simply pointed toward the fireplace. George kind of saw it, but by that point, the figure had transformed into nothing more than an outline burned into the rear of the fireplace. Shortly after watching a fire demon spring out of the fireplace, Kathy found a room in the house not documented in the house's floor plans. It was about four by five feet and hidden behind some shelves. And I've had this kind of dream many times, finding more rooms in my apartment, but this was not that. The room was painted floor to ceiling in red, which, you know, okay, whatever gets you off. But the problem was the room smelled like blood. The Lutzes called it, creatively, the red room. I would have gone with creepy hidden blood stank room, but we all have different ways of expressing ourselves. Nowadays, a room like that in New York City would be rented out for $2,400. In the movie, the red room is found behind a stone wall in the basement, but only after the wife of George's co-worker herself goes immediately crazy in the house and picks up a sledgehammer and just starts whacking into the wall. Also, the Red Room is a portal to hell, and something about the Salem witch trials which really makes no sense. And by the end, the floor opens up and there's a pit filled with blood or something. George falls in it, but as with the rest of this godforsaken movie, nothing happens to him. He climbs out and everything's fine. Also, incidentally, the woman who played the sledgehammer-wielding friend directed me on a TV show once, just in case you ever need that random nugget of information. But the red room of torture and despair was nothing compared to what happened next. One night at 3.15 a.m., George awoke to hear drums and horns blasting throughout the six-bedroom house. A marching band, kids. George was being haunted by a marching band. The band sounded like it was in the living room, but as soon as George poked his head in, it stopped. George screamed, you sons of bitches, where are you? Which is a very strange thing to yell at an invisible marching band. Where are you? How about, how did an entire marching band fit in my living room and then disappear? Like a ghost marching band is gonna reply rationally? Oh, so sorry, sir, we're right here. Are we disturbing you? For the rest of the night, George could hear the marching band playing throughout the house, but Kathy and the children never woke up. In the movie, the marching band thing is fleeting, which I found particularly disappointing. It's a real missed opportunity for some cinematic drama. Imagine hundreds of teenagers in tall hats just marching through this dude's house with tubas and drums, banging out, that's the way, uh uh-huh, uh-huh, I like it. I mean, that would have been an Oscar-worthy moment. It's important to point out at this point, the Lutzes had been in the house less than three weeks. 
In under three weeks, they endured an unseasonal fly infestation, apparitions in the fireplace, discovering a creepy red room of potential awfulness, awful stenches, black toilet water, a demon pig, and an invisible marching band. But the Lutzes stayed put. And honestly, it doesn't sound like they were doing anything to combat the awful shit happening in their house. I mean, don't get me wrong, I don't know how you put a stop to an invisible marching band, but it sounds like they didn't bother to bring their priest back, or, I don't know, bring in a different priest for a second opinion. It just seems like they were hoping it would all go away on its own. But the thing about hauntings is, they're just like black mold. You need to do something about it, or it's just going to keep spreading. And the longer you ignore it, the faster it spreads. After the first marching band incident, one evening George heard heavy breathing coming from his and Kathy's bedroom. He ran up to the room to find Kathy floating in midair toward the open windows of their bedroom. After a brief struggle with what he claims was an invisible force, he freed Kathy and the pair fell to the floor. This was another moment inexplicably left out of the movie. I'm telling you, nothing happens in this movie. Here was an opportunity for levitation, and the filmmaker skipped it. Why? Why? Come to think of it, considering the jankiness of the special effects in the movie, I'm going to go ahead and assume their levitation budget was lacking. As was clearly the budget to pay an entire marching band or get the rights to That's the Way, Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, I like it. Then, one night, George got up at about 2 a.m. for a beer because... Sure, nothing like a sensible 2 a.m. beer. When he reached over to tell Kathy he was leaving for a bit, and she was once again levitating. Now I have a couple things to say about this. One, again, left out of the movie, which, why? And two, why are you waking your wife up at 2 a.m. to tell her you're getting a beer? What in the Samuel French is the matter with you? Just shut up and go get a beer, Bob. Your wife doesn't need to know. At this point, Kathy was getting the brunt of the haunting, which is another thing changed in the movie for some reason. Maybe the movie execs were like, okay, but if we make it George getting the worst of it, we can have lots of scenes of him sweatily chopping wood and also stealing free library books. And they all patted themselves on the back for Hollywooding right. My favorite scene, though, is where Josh Brolin is sitting in front of the fireplace having a bad dream. And he has a very James Dean, you're tearing me apart moment. And Margot Kiddo runs in and is like, what's wrong? And the first three times I watched the scene, I thought he said, oh, I was just screaming. And when I tell you I howled with laughter alone in my apartment, please believe they could hear me down the block. Like just the most casual, who me? Nothing. I was just screaming. Turns out he said I was just dreaming, but for a few minutes there, it was the best cinematic moment I thought I'd ever seen. So, in real life, at one point, George glanced over at Kathy, and to his surprise, she had transformed into an old woman. George was shocked and horrified because, as we all know, Demon pigs and ghost marching bands are one thing, but old ladies? Terrifying. Kathy's hideous oldness vanished pretty quickly, but 
the Lutzes could barely process that before there was a new problem they had to deal with. Soon after Kathy morphed into an old woman, a mysterious green substance began oozing out of the walls and door locks in the Lutzes' house. When Kathy first saw the gelatinous substance leaking from the wood paneling, she thought her kids were to blame. She yelled, Which one of you did this? Tell me or I'll break every bone in your bodies. Yikes, Kathy. I'm sure the kids were like, Are you kidding us? You've been levitating. Dad is hearing marching bands at all hours of the night. And Jody's best friend is an imaginary pig with glowing eyes. This shit is haunted. It's at this point that the most disgusting, most inexplicable thing, in my opinion, happened. George is like, what the fuck is this shit oozing from the walls? And you know what he does? He tastes it. He tastes it. What the fuck, George? Not even Peter Vankman would pull that shit. And not to victim blame or anything, but once you're licking the slime coming out of the walls, whatever happens next is on you, buddy. What did happen next was this. 28 days after moving into the Amityville home, George began to hear the beds moving around in the boys' room upstairs. Then the dresser drawers in his room started opening and slamming shut. He tried to get up and check on the children, but he discovered he couldn't move. Paralyzed, he heard the furniture flying back and forth more quickly upstairs. Downstairs, George could hear the marching band begin to play again. As the band made their ascent to the second floor, George started screaming, but he could make no sound. His body began to thrash about as if possessed. Soon, George passed out in a pool of his own sweat on his and Kathy's bed. He only came to when his stepson Danny woke him up and said, It's a monster! He doesn't have any face! With all his might, George pried himself from the bed and ran to the stairwell. When he looked up, he spotted the hooded figure Kathy saw in the fireplace just a few weeks prior. It was pointing at him, which is impolite, but in its defense, if it was trying to get these people out of the house, nothing else had worked. Why not try pointing? Well, folks, it was the pointing that did it. I couldn't tell you why this creepy moment was any different from the previous creepy moments at 112 Ocean Avenue, but finally the family decided they were out of there. George ushered Kathy and the kids to their van, and as he pulled out of their driveway, George muttered to himself, Thank God I'll never see you again, which is also what I said when I broke up with my ex for the final time. In retrospect, that relationship was definitely haunted. So the Lutz family was allegedly haunted by the ghosts of the DeFeos or some random spirits or whatever, but were they faking it? Was the whole thing a hoax? During late December of 1975, Ronald DeFeo Jr. had already been sentenced to life in prison for his family members' murders after pleading not guilty by reason of insanity. The Lutzes claimed they wanted to help DeFeo Jr.'s insanity plea. They believed something in the house had driven DeFeo Jr. to kill. George said, 
We realized there was something so wrong there that it would be inhuman. It would be improper to just let him rot in jail and not try to help him get some kind of psychological help. DeFeo Jr.'s lawyer, William Weber, was already gently pursuing book deals about the murders, so when the Lutzes contacted him, he was like, ooh, ghosts and demon pigs, this could be a bonanza. Lawyers, man. No offense, some of my best friends are lawyers. The Lutzes invited Weber over to the house, which sounds rude. Like, if you're being tormented by demons in your house, don't bring company over. Find a neutral location. Then again, the whole point of the meeting was to show Weber that DeFeo Jr. was probably possessed when he committed the murders, so ostensibly Weber knew what he was walking into. At this meeting, whose purpose, I'll remind you, was to help a person with his legal case to get out of prison, which not for nothing is relatively high stakes, George, Kathy, and Weber got drunk. Really drunk. Between the three of them, they drank four bottles of wine. That's a lot of wine, folks. That's an entire bottle and a third per person. And I'm sorry, but if you can drink that much wine and still stand up straight, chances are you were absolutely hammered every night you claim to have been haunted, which I'm pretty sure pokes some pretty major holes in your believability. Not only could this threesome stand up after drinking a bucket of wine each, but they also apparently began cooking up book pitches. Weber initially said of the meeting, there was this give and take, and toward the end we were creating ideas. This dude just outright admitted they were making shit up. But then, when Weber was asked if he believed the Lutzes, he told an interviewer, absolutely not, because they were making a commercial venture. I mean, okay, bro. Maybe he got cut out of the royalties, but like, bitter party of one, am I right? The Lutzes, on the other hand, swear that although they embellished some parts of the story, everything in the eventual book, The Amityville Horror, by Jay Anson, actually happened. In both the book and the movie, the priest the Lutzes claimed had come to bless the house was tormented afterward, receiving some kind of stigmata, having all kinds of accidents, and eventually going blind. But in an affidavit, Father Ralph J. Pecoraro, quote, indicated that his only contact relating to this case was a telephone call from the Lutzes regarding their psychic experiences. He said after the call, his life proceeded as usual. Kathy and George divorced just five years after they got married. Kathy died of emphysema in 2004, and George died of heart disease in 2006. Their children largely stay out of the limelight, except for Daniel Lutz, who stands by the fact that the hauntings actually happened. In the 2013 documentary My Amityville Horror, Daniel says it's difficult to tell people about his experience. He told the camera, it's not easy to tell someone how you got thrown up a staircase. It's not easy to tell someone your bed was bouncing off the ceiling. That being said, Daniel attributes some of the paranormal experiences to tensions with his stepfather. Ultimately, the media tension and tumultuous relationship with George made Daniel's childhood arduous. But despite his stepfather's influence, Daniel still believes supernatural forces played a major role in his life's difficulties. Jim and Barbara Cromarty moved in in 1977, just 14 months after the Lutz family fled. The Cromartys owned the home for 10 years and said they never experienced anything paranormal or even unusual. 
The worst part about living at the Amityville home was that after the Lutzes published their story, the Cromerties had to contend with a constant stream of curious visitors, including one guy who showed up on their lawn at 3.15 playing taps on a bugle, and oddly, people who would yell and curse at them just for living there, I guess. The Cromerties actually sued the book's publisher and the Lutzes for fraud. They wanted the family to admit their story was made up to stop the incessant flow of creepy visitors and bugle players. The two families settled the case in an undisclosed six-figure sum in 1982. The house has been bought and sold four times since the Lutzes fled that December night in 1975, with nary a whisper of any paranormal activity reported. Despite it being a regular old house, though, people still bother the current occupants, and Hollywood is still trying to suck the dry teat of this story. Just goes to show, perhaps the best way to make your fortune is to claim a bunch of spectral teenagers are tormenting you with their marching band version of today's greatest hits. If I had to guess, I would say the Lutzes were inspired by another movie about possessions and demons. The Exorcist had just come out two years before the Lutzes moved into the house at 112 Ocean Avenue. It was a massive hit. And, it turns out, The Exorcist was also based on supposed real events. Next time on Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan, I'll introduce you to the boy who started it all. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. This episode was written by me and researched by Jess McKillop. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. Our episodes are mixed and edited by Jennifer Swatek. If you like our show, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUPod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. 